Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good evening. Welcome to the Helen Edison Lecture Series at the University of California at San Diego. I'm Bob Kittle, and we're joined this evening by two experts on the American news media. First, Len Downey, editor-at-large at the Washington Post, who for 17 years was the executive editor of the Post. And during that time, the Washington Post won an unprecedented 25 Pulitzer Prizes. Today, uh, Mr. Downey is professor of journalism at the Cronkite School at Arizona State University. And also joining us is Michael Shudson, who is a professor of journalism at Columbia University. He is a MacArthur Fellow and is widely published on journalism. He is also a professor emeritus at UCSD. Welcome, Michael Schutzen. Both of these men are, are the authors of The Reconstruction of American Journalism, which is a landmark study that attempts to give us a glimpse at the future of American journalism. So let's begin with Michael Schutzen. What are the basic findings in your report about the state of affairs in American journalism today? Let me begin, if I may, by uh, going back 200 years, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. Um, uh, right. We only have an hour. Okay, right. Well, this, I can do this quickly, I think, um, because what the, the center of the report is, is a, raising the question of how to preserve uh, the best accountability journalism and original reporting, especially at the local level, where we see the current economic crisis as being especially threatening. Um, going back 200 years, there was no such thing as accountability journalism in the 1700s, early 1800s, that, uh, because there wasn't reporting. There was uh, the, the, the newspapers of Ben Franklin's day or Tom Jefferson's day were newspapers that largely printed news about London and about Europe. Um, and in, on the American side, they were um, what we would call aggregators today. They, they picked up news from other newspapers. In the early republic, uh, the, the newspapers uh, were subsidized in part by the federal government uh, because they circulated in significant part through um, being sent through the post. And newspapers could be sent to other newspapers free of postage. Uh, thanks to uh, the federal, the founding fathers' desire to uh, encourage the circulation of information. The newspapers that then developed uh, began in the 1830s or so to do actual reporting. Those newspapers were highly partisan operations. Uh, Political parties were the main subsidizers of newspapers. And that continued until what one uh, professor has recently called the happy accident, the happy accident, uh, uh, he says, Clay Shirky writes, that, is that these days, and it began about 100 years ago, Walmart is willing to pay for the Baghdad Bureau. The idea is that um, in, in local terms here, that, that Ralph's and Nordstrom's are willing to pay for a, uh, the Washington Bureau. Um, uh, the San Diego Union Tribune no longer has a Washington Bureau. That's another story. But uh, it, it was advertising. This became a much more advertising-based uh, news operation than anything anywhere else in the world. Um, and that's what has fallen apart. Um, 
uh, advertising in recent years has drifted off uh, to the, the web. Uh, classified advertising has been badly hurt in the newspapers. I focus on newspapers rather than broadcast because newspapers have been the um, real heart of, of original reporting that broadcasts often piggybacks on. Um, so we're, we're at a point where there was a, a kind of perfect storm of, of economic problems. Um, young people were stopping uh, uh, as, or never began as readers. Older people have been reading newspapers less. Newspapers started competing with themselves by going online where you could access their news uh, free of charge. Why, why pay then for the newspaper? Uh, uh, there was an economic recession, you may have noticed, and that uh, hurt advertising further and hurt newspapers further. Uh, and uh, newspapers had been doing very well, exceedingly well, in fact, for uh, some years and uh, took on debt at what turned out to be exactly the wrong moment. Um, and, and people have been fearing, it hasn't yet happened, but people have been fearing that we would soon wind up with a major American city or, or several without any newspaper. Uh, that's the, the current crisis, and uh, the way the newspapers have responded is by cutting their staff. Um, and we're down about a quarter to a third uh, in the size of newsrooms from what it was even four or five years ago. Just talking about newspapers. Just newspapers. Um, uh, broadcast has been hurt too, but the, but the newspapers is where um, our concern has been greatest. Who's going to do the original reporting? Where, where is that um, uh, the basic source of news information that everybody else piggybacks off of? Where is that going to come from? Uh, so uh, it, it's that that uh, has, has led to a, a major national conversation, uh, and it's that that has prompted our report. What's different about our report, I think, from a lot of things that have been said, is that we're actually optimistic. Um, uh, we call the report the reconstruction of American journalism, and it seems to us that part... Part of the problem for uh, the newspapers is this: is the rise of the new media that is a source of the problem. It may also be a source of the solution. Are newspapers doomed? I don't think so. Um, uh, I'm not sure I would have said that <laughs> two years ago. Um, some some newspapers have not been uh, badly hurt. If you're in a in a smaller community. Uh, a more insulated community where you're still uh, the main game in town uh, for advertising, where Craigslist doesn't yet exist uh, and probably won't uh, because it's too, too small a market. There, you know, there are 700 Craigslists, but there are I don't know how many thousands of uh, American communities. Vermont has one Craigslist. It's not very useful in Vermont. Uh, you don't want to drive six hours to get a bicycle um, or to look at it. Uh, and uh, so, so some newspapers are still doing okay, um, and those that aren't, those that have been most hurt, which are the large metropolitan daily newspapers that are, have been such a strength of American journalism in the past half century, um, they're, they've managed to survive, and I think they will manage to survive, but they managed to survive by cutting their quality, 
cutting their staff. That's not, you know, what you would do in an ideal world, but it's working. Lynn Downey, what are the recommendations in your report? Let me lead up to that for a second uh, by picking up where Michael left off, which is that in this reconstruction of American news media that's going on, there are a lot of hopeful things that have been happening. First of all, just to finish out on newspapers, there are 1,300 daily newspapers in the United States as of a few years ago. And during this crisis, we've lost maybe 100 or so that either have gone out of business or are no longer daily. They're only publishing certain days of the week. And there'll be more that'll go out of business and more that only publish certain days of the week, but we'll still have a lot of newspapers left. But they are smaller than they were before. But what's happened at the same time is that there are new news organizations springing up. Uh, and, and the newspapers themselves with their own websites in many cases are becoming a richer source of news than the, than the printed newspaper was for a variety of reasons, things that you can bring into the website. But most importantly are these new startup news organizations. The Voice of San Diego here in San Diego is a very good example, one of the leading examples, where young people or in the case of some of the other startups, uh, veteran journalists who've left other newspapers and been forced out of other newspapers they've downsized have started up new local news organizations. Some of them are neighborhood news organizations in the city of Seattle. Almost every neighborhood has a kind of local neighborhood news organization started by a professional journalist, but citizens help provide the news coverage there uh, to uh, uh, metropolitan ones like the Voice of San Diego to uh, investigative reporting startups at universities, many universities across the country. Another one of those has started here too at San Diego State, the Watch Institute just recently started by former investigative reporters at the San Diego Union Tribune. So that's the good news, that there's a lot of opportunity out there because if you start a website, a news website, you don't have printing presses, you don't have all that overhead. Uh, And the question is, how then do you pay for that? And so far, it's been a multiplicity of sources. Most of them have started with some philanthropic help. Uh, 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 Both national and local foundations have been involved, for instance, in helping to finance the startup of the of the uh, Voice of San Diego, along with local businessman Buzz Willie, uh, so it's been it's been local angels and foundations and so on. Uh, then they try to attract some advertising; they're able to attract some of that, and then they try to attract memberships, like public radio and television, have all their readers you know contribute money to keeping the website going. And now some of them are finding that they're able to get paid to supply news to major news organizations. So, for instance, in Chicago, a new startup there is supplying local news to a new Chicago edition of the, of the New York Times. So the New York Times is paying this new startup in Chicago, competing against the Chicago Tribune. Uh, So what we found is that there's a new ecosystem growing up, and there's some good things about it. More news organizations than there were before, even though the biggest ones are smaller than they were. Competition, which is always good, and it died out a lot when there were uh, big monopolies like the Union Tribune in San Diego that kind of snuffed out all the competition. But the question is supporting them over the long run, and that's where our recommendations come from. And because there are six of them, and I'm an old older person that can't always remember six things. I do have them written down just in case. Now, the first is that, as I said, a philanthropic support has been very important to these startups. So, the, the, and they mostly started as nonprofits, and so they, they, you know, they're, they're categorized as nonprofits by the IRS. They don't have to pay taxes on any money they make beyond their expenses, and they, and they are able to uh, provide, obviously, um, tax-deductible contributions for people to contribute to them. That's very important to their existence. The question is, if they get a lot of advertising revenue over time,
time, if their economics change, are they no longer going to be nonprofits? What if the Union Tribune decided that the only way it could survive was as a nonprofit? Could it become one? Nobody knows the answer to this because the IRS has never said. So our first recommendation is we, the IRS or Congress, if necessary, should instruct the IRS that all news organizations that want to be nonprofits can be nonprofits, just like all orchestras that want to be nonprofits can be nonprofits. We think it's the same kind of community good. Uh, the second recommendation is that foundations and philanthropists expand their, their nascent support for these new news organizations. Some foundations have taken the lead in doing this, like the Knight Foundation nationally, some community foundations like the San Diego Community Foundation, but still the majority of national foundations and the majority of community foundations are not yet supporting news organizations. Uh, and we think that need is just as important as all the other community goods that are being supported through philanthropy, uh, and we're urging them to do so. And there's a lot of interest in the philanthropic community at the national and local level in, uh, in doing so. Uh, thirdly, uh, you know, public radio and television is already a nonprofit source of news, but in terms of local news coverage, as opposed to the national things you see on PBS, there's not very much. Mm -hmm. So we're saying the CPB, the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, uh, ought to decide that this is a high priority for them, and they ought to reorganize the way in which they fund and instruct uh, local uh, uh, broadcasters, public broadcasters around the country, to focus more attention on local news. And there's an interest in that too. The CPB is beginning to experiment with new kinds of local news coverage around the country, but it's still also in its early stages. We'd like to see it grow a great deal. Universities. Some universities, uh, uh, like Columbia University, where Michael is, like Arizona State, where I am, the Cronkite School, are engaged in actually doing journalism in addition to teaching it. Columbia has uh, a neighborhood news organization staffed by students, supervised by former professionals now on Columbia's faculty. Uh, the Cronkite School has a statewide news organization staffed by students, uh, but, uh, but uh, directed by uh, professional journalists now on the Arizona State staff uh, that cover the news. And they're able to supply either news coverage that fills in the cracks where the major news organizations can no longer cover local news, or in some cases are providing local news to those news organizations. So we would like to see universities across the country produce journalism as well as teach it. Uh, we, we've taken notice, Michael's really become an expert on this, that governments are producing lots more information than you could consider news than ever before. All kinds of databases, information from government agencies and so on. And a few nonprofit organizations and a few journalists have figured this out and are beginning to sort through this information to provide news for people that couldn't deal with the raw material themselves. We'd like to see that accelerated. We'd like to see the government do things to make it more uh, available to, uh, to everyone. We'd like to see more nonprofits, more journalism organizations get involved in using this information. And again, there's interest in this in Washington. The Obama administration uh, has a project to open up more public information, to, to, to engage in partnerships with citizens who will help them disseminate public information, and we're beginning to see it start to happen in the state and local level. Our last uh, recommendation is the most controversial. And that's that we would like to see the creation of a fund for local news that would be in, using the model of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting or the National Science Foundation or the National Endowments for the Arts and uh, uh, the Humanities, in which the federal government would provide money to an independent organization like the CPB or like the National Endowments uh, that would then be awarded on a competitive open basis to news organizations, uh, nonprofits as well as for-profits, for innovative local news coverage. In other words, to try to expand local news coverage at a time when it would otherwise be contracting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Your, your report concludes that American society now must take some collective responsibility 
for supporting independent news reporting. Right. And you compare that to the government's involvement in education and health care. Is, is the free market in news gathering uh, broken? Is it, is it, it, it's broken, but it's not dying. Uh, I think there have been mistakes on both sides. People feel that it's, you know, it's, it's going to be gone. It's not going to be gone. Uh, but, it's, but it's smaller. Uh, the, free mar- the, mar- the marketplace support for news is a fraction of what it was before and is not going to get larger again. So there needs to be help. There needs to be, there needs to be public support along with private support. So, Michael Shudson, uh, I mean, do you agree that things are such that we're never going to see a revitalized private sector, purely privately funded, financed, independent uh, news media in this country that we need uh, a government subsidy in one form or another, as your as your recommendations uh, conclude, that we're past that era when mm-hmm. when the news was a was a free market enterprise. Well, uh, first, it, it, it was never as much of a free market enterprise as as we've taken it to be. As I say, the, there's been federal subsidy through the post office since 1792, which we, we tend to forget about. Um, the, but granted, uh, for the most part, uh, the, uh, we've been a commercially minded news uh, uh, industry here. And uh, much more so than other um, liberal democracies, uh, which is worth remembering, too, that um, uh, Britain has uh, one of the largest news organizations in the world, in the BBC, uh, subsidized by some $6 billion of uh, uh, government money. Um, uh, Scandinavian countries, France and, and others, uh, offer direct subsidies to newspapers, and they've been doing so for some 40 years. Um, they're still democracies. So I, I, part of the thinking on this, the, the, as, I, as we propose um, a, uh, some federal, additional federal funding for the news media, is uh, that it's, it's not as dangerous a thing as I think a lot of people just, take it to be, and a lot of journalists in particular sure. take it to be. Um, if uh, So many journalists we've talked to uh, since the report came out immediately say, it, Pravda, Izvestia, uh, that, that's what you're calling for. I said, no, no. Uh, not, not, we're not asking for the government to own the, the news media. We're asking for government contributions, uh, as with the National Science Foundation and, and so forth. So... Uh, uh, that's an important part of answering your question. You say, the, uh, how broken is the commercial model? I, I don't know exactly how broken, um, but it is, uh, you know, a quarter or a third smaller than it was, um, and and I don't see how that's going to come back. Maybe they can preserve it where it is now, but I, I don't see where it's coming back. And we're really talking about a diversified support for the news, because even the largest news organizations, the New York Times and the Washington Post, are not entirely supported by advertising and subscription income anymore. Both newspapers, for instance, have published stories produced by ProPublica, a nonprofit 
philanthropic-supported news organization headquartered in New York, uh, who have attracted some really outstanding journalists, and we've done work in collaboration with them. We're, you know, the, there's a lot of collaboration going on now between for-profit news organizations and non-profit news organizations that didn't exist before. There's also a lot of collaboration going on with ordinary citizens. We're, we're, you know, we use our websites to ask for contributions of information. Uh, we, we, we take pictures of the, in the great snow emergency in Washington. A lot of the photographs in WashingtonPost.com, even as we speak, are coming from citizens. Uh, and they're not being paid to do so. They're contributing those. Uh, so it's really a, a diversification, a collaboration for the news media, which we weren't used to as recently as the second half of the 20th century when these big private monopolies sort of did everything all by themselves. Mm -hmm. I recall at least one member of Congress uh, last year when the legislation was first proposed to allow newspapers to convert to nonprofit status saying, well, yes, that's fine, but if if we do that, uh, they won't be able to endorse uh, political candidates. They'll have to stay out of election campaigns. Uh, I mean, it seems to me there are a lot of red flags. That was one of them. Uh, When we start looking at ways that government is going to support the news media. Can, can we have it, and explain to me how we can, since I think you both agree, how can we have government, direct government subsidies in one form or another of, of news media organizations without it compromising their independence. Well, exactly what you talked about, which is that, uh, you know, the Voice of San Diego is a 501c3. Therefore, they do not endorse political candidates. They have to give that up in order to be a 501c3. Our recommendation about uh, nonprofit news organizations does call on the IRS to make clearer that you can express editorial opinions, uh, if not necessarily endorse candidates with with nonprofit money. But uh, that's a small, I mean, I, I haven't heard anybody at Voice of San Diego lament that they can't endorse political candidates. But they do analyze the news and they do make clear views about things. They do publish what would look like columns online and so on. So it's not that limiting. And the government never tells them what to do just because they're a nonprofit. That's the essential question. Is the government going to be directing the news media or not? And they're not. Nothing that we propose would allow the government to direct the news media. Just as while there have been attempts in Congress, for instance, to have the government interfere with how awards are made by the National uh, Endowment for the Humanities or National Endowment for the Arts, and it's caused some controversy and so on. It never went, it never happens. You know, they, they get pushed back again. And I think I think after a while, when you got used to the fact that it was a fund for local news with federal money in it, that it would begin to operate in a way that everybody would feel comfortable with. And we're not talking about, again, buying a news organization. We're talking about providing the funding for some aspects of the reporting and particularly the innovation in digital journalism uh, that uh, uh, for a news organization that would be getting support from everywhere else, including advertising. And also remember when you know when we were entirely subsidized by advertisers yes some news organizations were influenced by that by big advertisers you know that happens but by and large most of the news organizations were not their reporting was quite independent and and it, certainly the advertisers were contributing more money than the government would ever contribute under our contributions under our suggestions michael shudson uh, i i agree with that i mean Wherever you have your money from, even from private foundations, right. there's, there's a potential for uh, influence uh, and some degree of, of coerciveness. Um, uh, that's the, the, the sort of the beauty, I think, of, of our set of proposals. If you look at any one of the proposals, you say, oh, I'm, I'm worried about the influence of philanthropy or I'm worried about the influence of government, but we're... We think that the emerging model is one of multi uh, sources of funding. Government could be more involved. Um, 
foundations, private individuals, uh, the, the marketplace, all of that together makes a difference. I, um, I, I was recording a, a program for um, public broadcasting um, uh, about all of this, and, and one of the other panelists, uh, a reporter from Newsweek, said, but how can you recommend government funding? Don't you know that, any gov- that government funds means government control? And I said, well, isn't this public broadcasting we're on? <laughs> and he, he'd completely forgotten about that. Right. Yeah. They, you know, a lot of people are, are, are so worried about turning into Providence, they don't see what we already have. And I think people are locked into, into uh, you know, the old models of the 20th century in which you had big private news organizations and in a few countries like, the, like Russia or the Soviet Union, you had big public broadcast, big public news organizations. And this, we, we, that's gone. You know, that's gone. That's been smashed. Those models are smashed. And we now have a multiplicity of different kinds of models, each of which will have very, very diverse funding. And, and how sustainable are these new models? The Voice of San Diego, one of the most successful uh, of the new new media organizations, is reliant to a very large extent on the, the philanthropy of one individual and other uh, philanthropic organizations such as the San Diego Foundation. But are these models sustainable over the long term? This is unfortunately a very good question. Uh, I, 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 I think that, uh, that there's a lot more that foundations can do. This is a bad time to be asking them because they've just lost a, you know, a significant portion of their assets, um, uh, just like universities have lost a significant portion of their endowments. Uh, this is going to change, however, um, at, at least as a confirmed optimist. I think we're going to get past this recession. Uh, and the, the, uh, the other thing I, uh, about this I would add is one of the great uh, advantages of the new technologies is that the money that goes to an online operation now goes almost exclusively to to journalism. Um, uh, a traditional newspaper spends something like seventy percent of its um, of its income on paper, uh, uh, a press, and trucks. Um, you know, the newspapers are really in the trucking business. Someone says, but. Uh, online operations are not in the trucking business. So uh, you, you can run a valuable journalistic service on a relatively small amount of money. Um, the, the, the efficiencies uh, that all of us have experienced uh, with uh, Google and the other ed, ed, uh, search engines that, uh, and the databases and so on makes reporting more efficient than it used to be. Um, they still need to be able to earn a living, and, uh, and foundations are not generally in the uh, habit of giving grants over um, multi-years, ma- many, I mean, a couple of years, yes, many years, no. Uh, uh, we hope that in this case, uh, that will change, and, it's, and some of these um, startups will eventually get endowments, will be able to survive. It's, it's going to be like 
like it was when there used to be 30 newspapers in New York of all different kinds, and now there are three or four. Uh, they won't all survive. But the ones that do best at, their, at, at what they're doing will. And so, for instance, in the case of The Voice of San Diego, they're now already moving to the stage where they're trying to sell some of the news that they produce to other people to share that news, which is another advantage of this, of, of this multiplicity of news organizations in that news can now be shared in a much larger uh, way than it was before, thanks to the Internet. Are Americans going to have to start paying for their news themselves instead of getting it largely for free or very, very low cost? Uh, some already are. Uh, in some of these communities that Michael talked about where the community is big enough to support a newspaper but small enough that there's no Craigslist or, or television stations or so on, and we're talking about sizable communities like Lawrence, Kansas, uh, the, uh, the newspaper is able to charge uh, uh, for access to its website, except for its subscribers for whom it's free. And as a result, it's protected more of its advertising than, other, uh, than larger newspapers have. So it's already happening in parts of the country. Again, this is not an either-or question. It depends on your individual case. Some uh, news organizations like the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which, whose main website is free, have figured out a niche website for which you could charge money. And, of course, it's the Green Bay Packers. Yes, yes. And so the Packers Insider website, they charge a lot of money for. And I find people in Washington who happily pay to, you know, to get access to the Packers Insider website. So you know, we at the Washington Post have to look at federal workers or something like that. Should we be charging for that as opposed to charging for access to the entire website? So the real answer to your question is we don't know yet. Some, some Americans are already paying for some kinds of news. More will pay for more kinds of news, and other news will still be free. And each news organization has to figure out what works best for them. Um, with all of this ferment that's going on in the new media, is the definition of news changing? Yes, it really is. Um, uh, there, news for the last 50 years has, first of all, been thought of as, as a, a professional product. Um, it, it still is. Uh, it is, and, and we're, while interested in citizen journalism, um, uh, we've been more interested in the uh, collaborations between professionals and ordinary citizens. But um, uh, sometimes it's the pure amateur who's coming up with News. Uh, uh, we talk in the report about um, a a blogger from Ohio. Um, unfortunately, um, uh, I read about her um, in an obituary in the New York Times. Um, she, why was there? Uh, that was my question. Why is there an obituary about? And it said blogger dead at what forty something. Um, uh, well, she she was in the mortgage business. And uh, she knew a lot about mortgages and uh, mortgage brokerage. And we were in a mortgage crisis. Suddenly, people started reading her. Paul Krugman in the, in the New York Times started reading her and quoting her. And his, what, did she have a degree in economics? I don't think so. Did she, was she a famous professor of economics? No. Um, she was in the mortgage business. But uh, people like her are springing up in, in sort of every microfield uh, around the country. That's changing how news circulates. Um, does it change definition? It, it, it changes uh, the, the, what the sort of constellation of news, and that is changing our um, sense of where news comes from, what you do with it. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of lateral movement of, of news uh, as people forward news from one friend to the next. Where uh, uh, it, 
it's shaking up the, the world in remarkable ways. Journalists, professional journalists working at daily newspapers are quoting uh, from, from bloggers or uh, gathering more of their information from other online sources that they happen to come upon. It, uh, they, they still go out and interview people. They still do the shoe leather work, but they're also making extraordinary uses of uh, online databases and so on and so forth. It's, it's changing the whole dynamic of what news is. The, the definition is broadening uh, for what news is. And it had been broadening with the professional media even before the Internet, as Michael has pointed out in some of his past writings. You know, we went from thinking that news was only government and politics and, and crime and so on to, uh, you know, to a family life. Uh, and religion and faith and all sorts of things that hadn't been thought of as news before. And so the, the professional media was already, in, in response to things like the civil rights movement, the women's movement, and so on, the professional media had already been broadening uh, the definition of news. Now that you, anybody can be a journalist, and I, I have no problem with that idea that anybody who goes online and, and gives you news is a journalist, uh, they are broadening the definition of news even further, and that's great. What, what, what areas are being covered that, that have been left out? I mean, is it, is it just community news that uh, newspapers, uh, especially large newspapers, never could get to cover? Uh, what's springing up out there that's news that uh, Len Downey wouldn't consider news to put in the Washington Post? Well, it, it, certainly neighborhood news, which was difficult for us to put in the Washington Post because we had such a large metropolitan area of five and a half million. You can't cover every single neighborhood. We would have had to make our staff ten times larger. So, for instance, in Seattle, where the Seattle Times cannot cover every neighborhood in Seattle, there are news organizations in each neighborhood there now, citizen-based news organizations, some of which are for-profit and expect to make money, and some of which now have ties to the Seattle Times, sharing uh, w website uh, information and access. Uh, but, um, uh, 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 you yeah, that's sufficient. The, and, Go ahead, and, uh, Also at the, at the community or neighborhood um, level, and perhaps especially in, in large metropolitan areas where um, people had come to trust in the, in the one or sometimes two major newspapers, they, they missed a lot. Um, uh, I, I talked to one reporter at one of the startups who um, said, you know, we uh, have volunteer people working for us who go and at, at uh, some of the community boards, uh, go, sorry, go, government boards that had never seen a reporter, had never seen a reporter. Um, uh, now, this m might turn out not to be the most fascinating news ever. Uh, it's not going to, but it's, it would never make uh, uh, the, the newspaper page. But some people are going to be interested. It is a way of keeping a watch on government operations. Um, uh, one other thing I've, I've learned about recently: there's there's another online startup. This one called Rustwire began in Toledo. Um, only they don't cover just Toledo. They, they cover Rust Belt cities. Um, now, that's an interesting idea. Um, it, it's made possible by this, the new technology. They have, um, they have uh, colleagues in other Rust Belt cities. Now, I'm, I don't know exactly what that will evolve into, but Rust Belt cities have a set of common issues and problems. Um, they will learn more about them by covering more than one city at a time. Uh, uh, it seemed to me a brilliant idea. Um, and, it's the, and again, the, the connections that people are able to make uh, 
Ask that question again in another year, and it'll be a different answer. More things will have sprung up. We discovered in Baltimore there are blogs that cover only crime. There are blogs that cover only urban renewal. There are blogs that only cover neighborhood problems. There are blogs that cover traffic problems. There are blogs that cover various aspects of local sports. Uh, and, you know, all of these things are covered in part by the Baltimore Sun, but they're not able to cover it in the kind of depth that these, these bloggers are able to provide. And if they surface something that's really interesting, then the Sun's going to pick it up. So you're really increasing your reporting power. And what about the reliability of this new news coming from bloggers and citizen journalists and others? You, you cite in your report, of course, the, the persistent rumor that Barack Obama was not born in the United States and therefore isn't eligible to be president. Uh, I mean, how is a reader to know if I'm surfing, uh, maybe I care about uh, Rust Belt cities. And today I'm on the Internet and I'm looking and I see bloggers writing about Rust Belt cities. How do I know, how does the reader or the viewer know What's reliable information and what is not? Right. This is not a new problem. Back when New York had 30 newspapers, or during the Civil War, I'm fascinated by the Civil War journalism, for example, which was completely crazy, wild. All kinds of terrible rumors about Abraham Lincoln and his wife were printed on the front pages of newspapers that were opposed to the Union in the Civil War, for example. Uh, and, uh, you know, Walter Winchell was famous during the early days of radio uh, for his uh, staccato presentation of various things that he thought were newsworthy, some of which were trustworthy and some of which were not. So that's why we think it's very important that in addition to all these other voices out there, that you have some news organizations that have credibility that you have to earn over time. So you turn to that brand name to, to uh, determine whether or not Barack Obama is a United States citizen or not, after you've read these blogs that are raising questions about that. So, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, the LA Times, a lot of newspapers, uh, you know, looked into it. Yes, we know what the birth certificate is. He was born in Hawaii and so on. And so you can go to those news organizations. Uh, you know, I have I have great faith in the American people, uh, and I, the whole the whole premise of the First Amendment is you can give them all the information in the world, all the opinions in the world, and they will sort them out and make good decisions. Not everybody will, but that's what we allow in this country. Michael Shudson, you, you're an academician, and you write books, and you have to be very careful in footnoting your material. Do you, when you're on the internet looking for information, as you did, obviously rely on the internet for a lot of your report uh, reporting for this uh, study. Um, how do you sort out what's a reliable source and what's not? Uh, the, the same way I do when I use the library. Um, the, uh, context, um, reputation, uh, innate or developed um, uh, bull detector. Um, that's very important. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and corroboration. So... Um, uh, all, all of those, it, it, I mean, there are a lot of terrible books that are there are unreliable books too, that, that, um, uh, and archives uh, that y y you cannot trust. Um, the, the internet accelerates that and intensifies that, but it, you know, it, I I think it's um, more than we sometimes imagine. It's also self-correcting. Uh, I had a very interesting discussion with two journalists in one of my classes. One said, what are you going to do when, when these news organizations are so small you don't really have an editor? Um, and uh, the other one said, uh, uh, well, when I worked for a newspaper, I was, um, you know, I learned from my editor. I was a little intimidated by my editor, but not nearly so much as I am intimidated by my readers who write in now. 
uh, and and correct me and and many of and collectively they know more than my editor ever did. Yes, there's more misinformation on the Internet, but there's also more transparency. I think the primary example of this is Wikipedia, uh, which the whole idea at the beginning was citizens will contribute this, citizens will create this encyclopedia on the Internet. Uh, They'll be self-correcting in Michael's term and so on. And uh, it it gradually has become to be an edited medium. Uh, It still is contributed by citizens and so on, but now they require uh, footnoting, you you just said footnotes, footnoting for almost any information, any uh, Wikipedia article you go to is filled with footnotes. You can trace those footnotes down. Is that a reliable source for that, as, that assertion that they made? And then if you want to argue with it, you can argue with it. And somebody in the editing structure of Wikipedia will make a decision about it. So I, I think there are two things, two lessons here. One is that uh, more participation is good, and yet a certain amount of editing is also good. Mm-hmm. You, you conclude in your report that local news is the most threatened of all. Now, why does that matter? And and talk a little bit about your recommendation for a federal fund for local news. Right. Uh, you know, local news is the most labor intensive. You know, there are lots of sources of national, international news. And when you're reporting on, you know, like national policy things, you, relatively few sources will suffice. If you're writing about something that's going on outside this campus here, you've got to go talk to people. You have to get out there and, and do it in detail. And you're going to have a lot of your readers are going to know what it is you're talking about, so you better be accurate. Uh, and it just it requires a lot more resources, more time, more effort. Uh, and that is, as new staffs get smaller, that's what is in danger, is losing the resources to do that intensely. Of reporting, and particularly not just the reporting of events, but the, but the accountability reporting, where you dig into uh, what's going on behind the scenes. That's what Voice of San Diego was founded to do—to f- focus its resources on that kind of accountability journalism. So that's what's most endangered, uh, and that's why. Uh, and and it also is the area where we believe there are still uh, a lot that can be done to innovate, both in terms of report uh, of how you do the reporting, how you involve citizens in the reporting. To to multiply your resources, uh, how you use digital methods to disseminate reporting and so on. So we think that's an area where uh, investment uh, through a fund for local news would work. Again, we're not talking about the fund for local news to completely fund any news organization, but rather through an open competition. The Voice of San Diego makes us a proposal. The Union Tribune makes a proposal. The Watchdog Institute at San Diego State makes a proposal for something innovative that they want to do in local news coverage that they could not do without this grant, something that would change their operation. Uh, and everybody would know what the, what the applications were. They'd be completely open. And in open deliberations, decisions would be made about who the money would go to and for what purpose. And, and uh, it would be evaluated as to whether or not they did that. Uh, it would not be used for partisan purposes. It would not be used for ideological purposes. Well, that wouldn't be the goal, at least, but uh, the, the aim. But, uh, I mean, to make a difference, we're talking about a lot of money, aren't we? To make to make a difference across the country in the in the caliber of local news coverage. Well, uh, and, and, and how would you pay for it? And you know, we do have a budget. Yeah, deficit. we do. We do have ideas for how to pay for it. Uh, the FCC right now collects from all of us a great deal of money in a variety of ways, particularly through the surcharge in our phone bills for long distance service. It's kind of an anachronism that goes back to when long distance service was first being uh, subsidized by the government, uh, and now it's used for things like uh, wiring schools and and 
and libraries for multimedia. It's used for bringing broadband to rural areas. And those things are pretty far advanced now. So there may be some money left over. And could that money be used for something like this? Or should the Internet service providers, which right now are benefiting from news content that they don't pay for, rather than figure out some other kind of paywall or some other way of charging for it, uh, should they be paying a fee through the FCC that would go into this fund for local news? That's not unprecedented. The cable companies right now pay into something that creates C-SPAN. You know, the C-SPAN is, is, is a subsidized by the cable companies through a fee. Uh, so it, it's, it's something like that that we think would be the mechanism to do it. How much money would it require? Well, we, we, we see it as seed money. We see it as the kind of money that would create something that if it worked in San Diego, then they could borrow it in Cleveland. They could do it in Atlanta. Uh, but they didn't have the money to figure it out in the first place for themselves. Uh, and uh, uh, again, it's part of a universe in which we hope universities are doing the same thing. Foundations are doing the same thing. So it's the, it's the total from all the sources that we think would make a difference. Right. The, the, at the national, international, national and international news are to some degree uh, a niche market. And they're a niche market where um, uh, that is actually we have more news than, than we did. We, uh, the, the Guardian in, in London has a, a third of its online readers are in, the, are in North America. Uh, the the, the uh, foreign news is more available to us now than it ever was before, um, and f- and foreign perspectives on on our own uh, foreign policy or our own involvement in the in the rest of the world. Um, on on Capitol Hill, there are you know, uh, a bunch of new and and still um, many old uh, publications where uh, they they have a business model that works. At, at the local level is where there's there's more concern and where we think um, any any further federal involvement should focus. Uh, th- this would include um, uh, a- additional services, uh, local reporting services for the uh, national public radio affiliates. Mm-hmm. And and the watchdog role that uh, the news media have played. Uh, how can the new media? most of which are very small organizations, uh, maybe a dozen journalists versus four or five hundred at a Metro Daily. Uh, how can they step into the void as newspapers retreat? And I, and I want to give a real specific example here because uh, the Union Tribune's uh, Washington Bureau, a reporter named Marcus Stern, uh, learned of the Duke Cunningham scandal when I believe the source of his information was a staffer in Cunningham's office who let him know that the congressman had sold his house to a defense contractor for much more than it was worth. Now, that kind of watchdog role, that can't be uh, taken up by somebody who says, okay, let's go study this problem or that problem. This was a matter of a reporter on the beat who had sources, who had relationships. It's extremely expensive and labor-intensive. And so I guess I'm wondering how the new media can right. can fill that kind of void. Strictly on the local level, leaving out the Washington end of it, um, uh, by focusing on the watchdog role. That's what the Voice of San Diego does. It is focused on the watchdog role. That's what the Watchdog Institute at San Diego State will be doing with investigative reporters who used to work for the Union Tribune will now be doing this at San Diego State. So if they're successful, if they're able to make their model work, 
they will be providing that kind of watchdog role because that's what their focus is. Now, that means they're not going to be covering sports, they're not going to be doing weather stories, a variety of other things that somebody else needs to be doing, but by and large, it's because of that focus. Nationally, is a worry. Uh, there are some uh, startups like ProPublica in New York and uh, uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting, a much older one in California, that are focused on the watchdog role on either a regional or a national level. But I do worry about those local news organizations that used to have reporters in Washington uh, that will not have reporters in Washington now. So, you know, the, the main business of Congress will be well covered by by, uh, by national news organizations, but you won't necessarily have the accountability for the local representatives that you had before, and that's, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would say, though, that, uh, uh, that thanks to um, a, a number of not nonprofits who are interested in what's going on in Congress, various sources of data... Uh, are are more available than they used to be. Uh, campaign finance data basically didn't exist before the 1970s. It's available. It's becoming more readily accessible. Um, a, a couple of nonprofits have gotten together to uh, make uh, available a, a database on foreign lobbyists. You can you know, choose choose your country, identify the lobbyist, uh, find out if he uh, he or she contacted your congressman. At what time, over what bill, that's all online. I think it's foreignlobbying.org. You, uh, you, you can go to it now, and, and reporters use these uh, databases. On earmarking, there's um, a, a, a nonprofit at conservative advocacy group that keeps lots of records on this. Every Washington reporter covering earmarking goes there first. So, um, uh, you know, are they going to be looking out for your congressman the way the Washington Bureau of your newspaper would do if there were still a Washington Bureau? Um, no, but there are alternative uh, sources that that will be a big help in that direction. Is part of your point that it doesn't take as, as large a staff to to gather the news in an era when so much is available uh, online and would new databases become available and it, it's not as... Uh, perhaps as labor-intensive as it once was? I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that reporting is more um, uh, uh, productive or more efficient than it used to be. Uh, that doesn't mean you can dispense with um, uh, entirely at all with, with those on-the-beat reporter contacts. And, and those have been very productive in sort of at unpredictable moments, like the Marcus Stern example. Um, uh, I'd like to have both, but uh, uh, and the one doesn't entirely uh, compensate for the losses of the other. I'm old enough to remember how inefficient reporting was uh, during the so-called heydays of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when we did a lot of great reporting, but it took a lot of time, and a lot of that time was wasted. And it's amazing how efficient you can be now. And this is one of the roles of universities, I think, university journalism schools, is to be able to uh, you know, keep on top of the sort of thing that Michael was talking about and make sure that the students understand, are learning how to do this, that current journalists are learning how to do this through universities and working with universities because there is more, much more productivity possible. It is possible to sit here in San Diego and do a lot of scrutiny of your, of your members in Washington. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's also good if you can get to Washington now and then and just schmooze with some people at the same time. Of course. Uh, which is a good segue to the next question, and, and that is your report says that it is time for university news organizations. Mm-hmm. Now, I can think of a lot of drawbacks to that. I can see some advantages. But again, the question of independence comes to mind. Uh, what, what do you have in mind when you talk about a, 
a news organization created by a university. Well, why don't you talk about what Columbia actually is doing, and then I'll tell you what, what uh, Cronkite School is actually doing. Okay. All right. Well, the, uh, there, there are several things. I mean, uh, what Columbia has been doing for some time, um, but intensifying now is um, students you know, from their first uh, month or two in the school are under supervision of an experienced journalist um, putting stories up on a website about specific uh, uh, neighborhoods in uh, in New York City. Not campus news we're talking about. Not, no, 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 not, not campus news. Um, Bronx news, uh, Brooklyn news. And um, there, there are actually several different things going on, but that, that's one of them. And it will take additional work to make that as useful as it should be. Um, uh, as the, the, the dean at Columbia says, the, the, the enemy of, uh, of making that as good as it is is called the semester. Um, you know, at the end of the semester, the site disappears. Um, uh, so the, the hope is that this will evolve into a, um, something more on the teaching hospital model where uh, uh, there will be interns who will keep that site going over the summer and between semesters uh, and will be an additional um, uh, source of uh, tutoring for the, the, uh, the novice journalists. Um, so that, that's, that's a one model. I, I should mention the, the one at Northeastern University in Boston is an interesting one, too, where a, an investigative reporter at the Boston Globe left the Globe uh, went back to his alma mater, Northeastern, started an investigative reporting seminar um, with agreement from the Globe that uh, that they would look at the stories. Um, they, they do indeed look at the stories, and in two years, those students have produced 12 front-page Boston Globe investigative reports. Um, so it, it's really quite interesting what... Um, a well-organized and prepared university journalism school is able to do. At Arizona State in Phoenix, uh, the Cronkite News Service, staffed by students and under professional supervision, uh, covered the state legislature, the state capitol, and other stories in the state. Uh, and 40 different news organizations in Phoenix are their regular customers for the news, including the Arizona Republic, the largest paper in Tucson, and so on, because they can no longer staff the state house the way they used to. There are holes in their coverage. And are they getting this coverage for free? Uh, no, they're, they're paying small amounts. It depends on the ability of the newspaper to pay. But this is one of the questions for making it beyond a semester, is if you get more uh, payment from your clients, can you then begin to pay students to stay in the summertime and, and do it year-round? Uh, the Cronkite News Watch program is a, is a half-hour local and state television news program on the PBS station. Uh, in uh, Phoenix on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday nights. And it's a, it's a very comprehensive, in-depth, sort of like the McNeil Lear Report, or actually the Lear Report now, on a, on a, on a local level. Uh, it, it's in more depth than the commercial stations are doing the news. Again, they, what they now want to do is take the next step and they'll make this a year-round operation. And that's what we're advocating. This will have to be our last question uh, before we get to the audience, but um, Walter Lippmann once said that the newspaper is the Bible of democracy that it was the place where everybody went to, to share information and to strengthen democracy. Of all the models that you've looked at and all the, the promising ideas and all the ferment that's going on, do you see anything out there that has the resources and that can, can, can fill the void 
you know, left by the retreat of independent, financially strong newspapers? Uh, uh, the answer is no single thing anymore. Uh, the answer is it's going to be this new ecosystem that we call it in the report, this new news ecosystem as a collective uh, that will be filling that role. Uh, and different parts of it will fill it in different ways. Bloggers will fill it in certain ways. New startup news organizations will fill it in other ways. Completely revamped old news organizations will fill it in other ways. Uh, it's, it's going to be a multiplicity of news organizations, which, in fact, as Michael's an expert on, was the way it went on for a long time in this country before those big concentrations in a few news organizations. Mm-hmm. Michael Shudson, you get the last word. Uh, I, I, I agree with what uh, Len said. I, I love newspapers. Um, I, 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 and I actually love them in their printed paper form. Uh, I, I'm, you know, the, the Internet is still new to me. And um, uh, I find it incredibly useful um, I don't have the same emotional attachment to it that I do with with uh, newspapers. Um, the New York Times in in the morning and is my number one uh, source of news in an ordinary day. But my number two source of news is actually um, I was thinking about this recently is is actually the the uh, PhD listserv at Columbia University because the students are constantly forwarding things to me, and they know who I am. They're like my collective RSS feed. uh, They know what I want to read. Uh, And uh, it's quite... So this is an entirely new form. I mean, people share gossip at the water cooler, too, and this is an advanced version of that. Uh, but they're, they're sending me not their thoughts. They're, they're forwarding something they saw in the New Yorker or in the New York Review or, uh, or in some publication I've never even heard of. But it's as our, as our report says, it's newsrooms that matter, not newspapers. The Washington Post newsroom is no longer a newspaper newsroom. If you walked into it now, it looks like a spaceship compared to the old newsroom. It is a multimedia newsroom. It's serving a website. It's serving television. We've got television studios in our newsroom. Uh, we, and and, the, and the, the news desk in the middle of the newsroom is half about print and half about multimedia. So it's, it's not newspapers is an outmoded term. We're talking about the newsrooms. That's what we're seeking to preserve. Okay. I would like to thank our guests, Len Downey, Michael Shudson. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.